Hello and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Laurel Thompson, and I'm excited to share an interview I did recently with violinist Maya Lorenzen. Maya has recently released a new album called Bach to Bach, in which she features one of the Bach partitas, along with two more modern works, which were inspired by Bach, and we'll look forward to hearing a few clips from that album. Maya also gave us some great insight into how she approaches a new work and balances the needs of works from different musical eras with perhaps different moods and different emotions. And she offered some wonderful tips for how to approach multi-stops, which of course are quite prevalent in the music of Bach, and of course all throughout the solo violin repertoire. And we also landed on a bit of a theme with this idea of music as a healing force, bringing together disparate parts that might be experiencing conflict. So whether those conflicts are happening externally, out in the world between different people, different countries, or happening internally in our own inner landscape and as we wrestle our own demons, we chat about how we can overcome these times of trials and setbacks and find a way through to get back on track and find joy in music again. And before we launch into the interview, I just wanted to read a little bit from Maya's biography. Israeli-German violinist Maya Lorenzen has performed around the world as a soloist and ensemble player. She is a prize winner of the 2016 Karl Adler Competition in Germany and the 2013 Meta Chamber Music Competition in Israel. Maya has performed under the baton of Daniel Berenboim in venues such as the Royal Albert Hall during the BBC Proms, Lucerne Festival, Salzburg Festival, Philharmonie de Paris, Carnegie Hall, the John F. Kennedy Center, the Chicago Symphony Center, and the Walt Disney Concert Hall. Maya has been an invited soloist with the Israeli Symphony Orchestra, the Jerusalem Symphony, and the Israeli Conservatory Orchestra, and she has also served as concertmaster with various orchestras, including the Young Israeli Philharmonic. I hope you enjoy our wide-ranging conversation, and I'll meet you on the other side. Hello, Maya, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. How's your day going? Going pretty well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. It's nice to finally make it happen. We've been chatting back and forth on email for, it feels like at least six months now or something. And and you've been quite busy. You've traveled to Europe, uh, it sounds like at least once to perform, and you've been wrapping up a doctorate. So where are we speaking to you today from? Um, yes, it's been a, it's been a a busy couple of months. Um, I am in my apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and as you said, um, I've, I've been wrapping up my uh, my doctorate in music, um, which, uh, you know, I had my final recital last week um, and had a lot of the exams and papers to write before that. So uh, it's a very, very exp- and exciting times. <laughs> yeah, it's a big push to wrap that all up and congratulations having a final recital just so recently and what was your certain area of study? Well, I got a DMA, which is a doctorate in musical arts and my focus um, or say the title is uh, music performance, specifically violin performance. Um, I've focused on two big things in the, in the, in the past five years. 
Uh, one of them um, is, is a subject that I've always been really fascinated with and I, I got to uh, dig deep into and, and do a lot of research on, which was cool. Um, uh, it was fingerings. <laughs> so just uh, looking at the entire uh, progression and the history of when did fingerings first start appearing and um, when was the first appearance of or, or the first appearances of composers or um, violinists putting fingerings in and what were the, the methods and where they were, were coming from and the entire development of that, of that until say Paganini and then how it influences our artistic choices and playing nowadays. Um, yeah, so that, that was a big topic that I, I loved um, researching. <laughs> That's fascinating. That fascinates me. And I'll have students, sometimes they're working on maybe Bach or something like that. And, and we pull out the original manuscript, or maybe it's a copy of a copy or something, but you know, something that's a little hard to read, but we see, wow, there are no markings basically whatsoever other than the notes and maybe a couple slurs and that's about it. And they, their minds are blown sort of because they think, oh, I should be shifting here. I should be doing this fingering. And yeah, it's really not true. So, so what did you find? When did fingerings really become prevalent in, in sheet music? Was there sort of a, it reached a critical mass and they all started populating our scores or? Yeah, um, well, you know, there, there were a lot of different appearances beforehand, especially in, um, in etudes and uh, studies um, in the late, uh, I would say the late um, classical uh, period. Um, and the first actual, um, well, let's say the, the first big uh, book that, that we get a lot of know can get a lot of knowledge from is um, uh, Leopold Mozart's book, uh, where he dedicates a whole chapter about fingerings. Um, they just had a, a lot of rules that um, um, were, let's say, not... <laughs> very well respected in, uh, in, in the late romantic era. Um, and um, I, I mean, in my research, I found that um, it's something that started with very strict rules and, and um, patterns that no one even dared to, to break um, got stretched and stretched and stretched over centuries. Um, decades and centuries until it reached, um, yeah, almost an explosion with the uh, the the breadth of, um, of of possibilities that violinists got to. With there's no better example for Gardini Caprices and the, his abilities as a violinist as well. Thanks to thanks to a lot of practices that we have today and and to discovering all those. All those books and the literature, um, we are able to make better decisions. And uh, um, I mean, a see all the angles of of um, of each challenge, but also make a decision that's based off of 
of knowledge and the history? Well, in different bodies, body types, right? Paganini had large hands. So of course he could do things that maybe people coming before him couldn't do. Or, you know, I think about women versus men and, and what our hand shapes are like and how long our fingers are, but also maybe how wide our knuckles are and all of these things play a role. And I remember growing up and there were some editions of, of pieces that I was working on where I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't make that fingering happen musically, right? Like I could pull it off, but it just wasn't going to be that beautiful high note with vibrato at the top. It was just going to be like this painful stretch or something, right? And so trying to figure out different ways to adjust the hand is one thing, yeah. but then yeah. it was kind of a revelation to me to then get some other editions edited by other people of some of those same pieces and see, oh, they're completely doing something different <laughs> and just feeling like it's okay. Like it's okay to be me. Right. And so it sounds like through this sort of classical into the romantic yeah. era, there's probably a lot of people that are experiencing that. Right. And then now we get all the benefit of having this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And sure, I mean, Leopold Mozart, I mean, he was writing some of the, the early information about how to play violin and stuff, right? But it's, it's nice to take that all in and sort of uh, simmer it down. And it sounds like that's what you've been studying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge subject and I could go you know, we could, we could do a whole episode on that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I also really love what you said about um, finding ways um, that are, that, that work for you and are comfortable for you and um, ways that help you ex express yourself and not, um, yeah, not just in a way that makes um, everyone else happy, but yeah, well, sometimes, you know, and now that there's YouTube, I kind of, I'm almost happy that I didn't have YouTube when I was really young. It didn't exist yet because I think it just would have overwhelmed me. And, and in some ways it's great. And I'm, I'm happy that my students get that to go and watch 10 different artists play the same piece they're trying to play, right? But then you see, you know, wow, they're making it to the top with that fingering. I should be able to do that or I'm just not good enough or something, right? So yeah, just to recognize that there are just so many different ways to do the same thing and and uh, and to express yourself, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And speaking of expression, you are expressing yourself on your new album. And mm -hmm. I just thought it was wonderful that it's all solo violin. How often do we get to have a solo violin album? And yeah, just nice to to explore that sound and all the different ways that it can express. So this is, um, it's called Back to Bach, and you have three pieces on there, starting with the, the partita number two from Bach. So uh, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about what drew you to these particular pieces and putting this together. Yes, um, so uh, my album is out. It's my first solo album, which is um, extremely exciting, but also very, almost nerve-wracking. <laughs> sure. It wasn't a, it was a very challenging experience, but it was the most teaching experience I've I've had in the past few years as a as a an artist first and foremost and a, as a violinist and and as a 
human being also. So um, it's very, very dear to my heart. Um, yes, so there are three works there. The first one, as you, as you mentioned, it's the, sec the second partita for uh, violin solo by Bach. And um, um, also, um, I also play Jesse Montgomery's first Rhapsody for solo violin on there and um, Missy Mazzoli's uh, Dissolve Oh My Heart. The album um, was created uh, in, in the winter of 21, 2021, which, you know, was pre-vaccinations and um, very cold and very, almost very dark um, kind of winter for, I believe, many people. Um, you know, we've been in this sort of unknown situation, um, dealing with a lot of difficult emotions for many, many months. Um, at that point, almost almost a year, really. For us artists, performing artists, music, musicians, it's it's um, been challenging in ways. Uh, I don't want to say it's been more challenging than for other people, but yeah, I'm dealing with a lot of difficult emotions and isolation. And in that state, I was dealing with the question of what can I do um, as an artist at this at, at, at this point of time? I think that's a question that a lot of a lot of artists ask themselves. Um, and uh, my 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 point of view was sort of how do I make this challenging situation that involves a lot of sort of difficult emotions how do I make it uh, something beautiful how do I um, create connection and intimacy in in times where those things are so missing <laughs> from my life and I'm sure from other from a lot of people's um, lives as well so I knew that I wanted to to do something with that and I am a true believer of the power of music and beautiful emotions that it can bring up and the way that it connects people not only to 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 themselves and to their own souls but to um, people around them and people in their lives so that's that was the that was the ground of of the entire album. And then from that, I decided to um, make it a, a solo album um, as a representative of, you know, the solitude and, uh, and the, maybe even the loneliness that I know I was experiencing and I know a lot of other people were experiencing. Yes, I, I think Bach is, uh, all his works, but specifically his, his um, six works for violin solo um, are, are, are works of music that invite a lot of intimacy and um, between the, the performer and the listener and potentially can bring up a lot of emotions and, and, uh, and, and create connections between people and, and also between a person and, and their uh, deeper emotions and deeper deeper selves so that was my first choice and then I I really wanted to add a bit of a more modern touch to it 
and I thought it would be interesting to showcase how um, how 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 deep box influence was and these are two works that I've heard in the past and I thought it was beautiful and interesting to hear how even 300 years 300 something years later people are so composers and artists in general are so deeply influenced by his works Missy Mazzoli's work actually starts with a citation from the Chacon um, so that was a pretty direct and, and easy choice to make. And uh, Jesse Montgomery's Rhapsody is, is, a, is a first piece in a series of six that she hasn't complete yet. But um, as you for sure know, six is a number that Bach used a lot. Um, it, it's, it's influenced by that, but by the violin solo pieces and also by the cello solo pieces. Yeah, the, the six cello suites as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was reading up a little bit on the other, these other two, and I, I liked as well, just last month was all about female composers was the topic. So it's nice to have this Bach, and then we have these two female artists, um, who are both violinists as well, right? They are, first and foremost, maybe violinists. Um, how did you come across these works, actually? Well, Missy Mazzoli, I actually have a good friend who is a violinist too, and she played that piece um, in a recital. And I, I just loved the, the, the character of sound and I loved the, the effect that it had on me when I listened to it. And because that's something that is a, it's a, big, it's a big thing that guides my work and my choices. Um, the way it affects other people. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to do. And um, Jesse Montgomery um, is a composer that I came across a few years ago. She is a New Yorker. So I, I thought that connection is interesting too. I, I heard a few chamber works of hers and works for orchestra. And I just, I really loved them. And I, I thought they were extremely com communicative and then I found out she has this solo piece that she wrote pretty recently, a few couple of years ago. Um, and I, I, yeah, I sort of fell in love in, in it and decided to add it too. Yeah, they were a nice combination with the partita. Definitely a little bit more of a modern feel, but then you could definitely tell that they were drawing influence from... Bach and and other other styles that to me dissolve my heart almost had a little bit of like an Eastern European influence mm -hmm. in there perhaps at some point at least for me that's what it reminded me of a little bit and sort of these dissonances and and of course that opening chord from the Chaconne mm -hmm. kind of tying it all together and then the Jesse Montgomery the Rhapsody a uh, little bit of almost like Vaughn Williams or this sort of that open spaciousness, right? And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it was a really nice combination. I felt that those two uh, really supported each other well and then supporting the Bach. So yeah, maybe we can hear just a, a few clips of these and, and we'll uh, get people interested in checking out more. Well, I'm, I'm so happy you found the combination to be interesting. 
Definitely. Let's dive into a few clips here. Let's uh, maybe hear a little bit of the Bach Chacon from his Partita Number no. 2 in D minor. And then we'll hear a little clip of Missy Mazzoli's Dissolvo My Heart, followed by Jesse Montgomery's Rhapsody Number no. 1. Enjoy.
Thanks so much for sharing these and anyone who's interested in hearing the rest of these songs, which I hope many of you will be, please head over to Maya's website, mayalorenzen.com. That's M-A-Y-A-L-O-R-E-N-Z-E-N. And you can also listen on Apple Music and Spotify. So you're talking about the different emotions and and how pieces make you feel and how, you know, you hope maybe your audience feels, your listeners feel. How do you sort of get yourself in the right mindset to uh, prepare and, and perform a piece, uh, any piece, but, uh, you know, different pieces like this that are on your album, maybe, um, you know, starting with the Bach, where we have these different movements, the Chaconne, which is obviously quite a range of, of emotions and, and um, sort of like what you were saying before that, almost like digging deeper into ourselves or that, that like spirituality or something is there, right? Versus something that's a little bit more playful. Um, one of the other movements, you know, the jig or something like that. Yeah. How do you, how do you sort of create that space for yourself and for your listener to, to get into that mood and to express that? Um, that's, that's an amazing question. Um, in regards to Bach, um, as you put it so well um it's a partita which means it's a collection of of, of dances um historically and um I always with the partitas I I try to come from that angle and to really feel the the rhythm and the lightness versus the the heaviness that uh, certain movements have and and that's where I, that's where I started generally speaking with everything that I ever prepare um, I think that it's extremely important to incorporate this kind of work from the very beginning so with practicing technical issues and with practicing you know intonation and sound and and um, articulation and memorizing everything that we go through technically I incorporate that with the emotion and the mood that I'm going for. So not that I never, that I, you know, just decide on something and that's, that's what, uh, that's the mood that I go for, for my entire life. But I, I really am very conscious about deciding and giving, um, giving sections, movements, phrases, a name emotionally. So I would always have an emotion for um, for the for the movement itself, and then I would choose or or you know select certain sections where it might be different or it might be more intense or it might be um, opposite, and I would name that and I would. Um, let that be my guide through the process of learning the piece. You know, different ears, different people are going to feel different things. And that's, that's, that's the beauty. <laughs> uh, that's the beauty of art. Um, but I, I do believe that um, if you put emotion into your work, it will it will also um, come out the other side or, or will also be perceived this way. 
Well, yeah, coming up with uh, sort of a like, a, like an emotional map with different maybe adjectives, it sounds like, to mm -hmm. describe different sections and really sort of it sounds like you, you go and you break down a piece into maybe, you know, different phrases have a different feel and and sort of, so of course there's the technical phrasing and and everything you have to do for the bowing and the shifting and, and the fingerings and all of that, but uh, it sounds like kind of behind the scenes there you have a map in uh, in some sense of where you want to go. And then that's, of course, is going to, I'm sure, inform what you do technically, right? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, yeah, you had a uh, video on your site of the, it was uh, the Bach uh, Concerto for Two Violins. And I enjoyed checking that out. And I felt that you had a different sense about it than I've heard from most people a lot more sort of this just uplifting and playful sort of more staccato perhaps and just as an example of sort of what we're talking about it's it's nice to hear someone interpreting a piece in just a slightly different way you go huh all right this doesn't have to be this in da 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 dum you know this intense um sort of almost drudging you know kind of way that I've, I've heard that piece in in some senses in some places but um, again this playful dance perhaps I'm glad you liked it <laughs> yeah you're welcome um, and then of course you know just talking about the technical I mean there's a lot that you're dealing with in all of these pieces that you've recorded but particularly the multi-stops there's uh, quite a few moments of course the Chaconne and and um, also in the in these other two uh, newer pieces, newer works, where you have to deal a lot with double stops, triple stops, quadruple stops. <laughs> I think those are always challenging for people and a lot of the listeners are violinists or at least string players themselves. Do you have uh, any certain approaches that you take when you encounter these sorts of things in music? Like what, what's your starting point when you, you need to break down a section and start working it back up? Double stops, triple stops, um, quadruple stops are always going to be uh, always going to be challenging. The way I tackle it, I am a big believer of um, separating separating the hands a little bit like pianists do. You know, pianists would almost automatically, when they encounter a really difficult passage, they would practice the right hand separately, and then they practice the left hand separately, and then they put it together. I'm sure there are other ways to practice, but um, that's that's something they do almost automatically. And um, I'm, me myself, I I I um, I only started doing it uh, well into my twenties. So after many 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 years of playing the violin, and I love doing that with my young students because um, I always found it to be extremely helpful, and I love that I that I get to show them this way that's um i think not not uh presented enough so specifically with with double stops um what i mean by that separating the, both hands is i would um start with the right hand and work on the sound by and when when i say just right hand i mean the left hand is completely passive meaning i'm playing open strings. Um, so I would just practice uh, with the right hand um, on the strings that I am 
supposed to play, about to play. With double stops, it's a little bit more straightforward because we are able to play two strings at a time. That would just be, the work would just be about finding the kind of sound that I want, that I'm looking for, and, and plan my bow in a way that, that makes it as easy as possible <laughs> or as least complicated as possible. Um, so really finding ways to work with the natural abilities of the violin and, and, and my hands and the bow rather than um, you know just do whatever happens and hope for the best. <laughs> um, so I would do that and then I would focus on my left hand, which means um, more intonation work. So with that, I, again, I'm a fan of separating, <laughs> separating and simplifying. So I would start with just cleaning the bass. So I, I, I would play the bass in this, or, or this, this, sorry, this would just be in the case of double stops. So I would um, separate both voices and, and play them individually. Um, for intonation, but also for phrasing. Um, and I would do so while also placing the other voice with my left hand, meaning my left hand is doing exactly what it's supposed to do eventually, but my right hand is only playing a voice that I want to work on. And then I decide on one voice that is my anchor. It's usually the, the lower voice, the bass. Um, and um, I add the soprano and I would take an another step forward and um, in regards of intonation and uh, look at the bigger picture. So in terms of harmony, what chord are we in? What key are we in? What, what are the functions of the different notes that I'm playing and then work on intonation um, accordingly. So to clarify for people, like maybe talking about if it's the root note of the key you're in versus the leading tone versus the third, a lot of people might just assume that it's always just what it is, right? But mm -hmm. of course on violins, we can micro adjust there a little bit. So sometimes, yeah, we want to be maybe dead on. It sounds like other times you might just decide to fudge something a little bit to, to bring something, you know, maybe a, a closer half step or something. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. I mean, we are lucky that on the violin, as you said, so nicely, we can, we could fudge some things around and not, I mean, intonation is not something that is always the same. Um, we do have the ability to, to adjust according to the situation. What notes we're playing against, or I mean, this is all, of course, talking about solo violin, but yeah, if we're playing with a piano or we're playing in an orchestra or yeah, how that, how that all works. But it sounds like most of the time you're, you're focusing on sort of the bass notes first and tuning off of those. And that's what I was always told as well. And I, I really do like the practice technique that you're talking about, and I use it as, as, as well myself, I found it really helpful where you're, you're still fingering the notes, all the notes, but you're only playing certain voices at a time. The lower line of voices, the higher line of voices. So I second that. I think that's a really good practice 
technique. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then of course with, with triple stops and multi-stops, there's a little bit more complication with how, how are we going to break these chords? I suppose a lot of that is the timing of the passage, how long you have to sort of fit it in there. But how do you go about that? Maybe mm-hmm. with Baroque music, contrasting with uh, maybe other eras of music as well. Is there a a different thought process you go through to figure out how to approach these chords? I've heard some players really sort of roll into some of the chords and almost do separate voices of each note. And then of course, with, you know, more modern works and, and uh, romantic era works and stuff, it's always, you know, the two and two or for, for a quadruple stop, it seems like. So yeah. how, How do you go about that? Um, yes, um, that's, that's also a really interesting question. So I uh, typically try to go to, for a very full, uh, warm sound in my playing, um, as a bass. So when I have quadruple stops, um, I actually play two plus two plus two. So G and the D string together, and then the Mm -hmm. D and the A and then the A and the E rather than just go G and D together and then A and E, because I find that it just creates a fuller, um, yeah, just a fuller, more warm sound and the chord is rounder by doing that. Um, of course, I don't break it in a way that that I, I pause on those pairs. Um, so I would practice two plus two plus two and then um, and then smoothen out those transitions to create that kind of round roundness in the sound. But when looking at different times, like you know the the three works that I that I focused on um, are from such different times, and the and and, and chords should be played um, or at least should appro- be approached differently. Um, well, in, in, in regards to Baroque, um, you know, with the Baroque bow and the Baroque violin, it was very difficult to play even double stops, but, but chords were pretty impossible to play. Um, and typically players would roll um, anything that was above two, two notes together. So triple stops and quadruple stops for sure. And so I love when people do that. And I, I think it sounds really beautiful on Baroque instruments, but I find personally that on modern instruments, the sound doesn't carry through so much as it would on a Baroque instrument. So it's really difficult to do it in a way where you you really get that chord sound. So I still take the, um, you know, the approach of finding roundness in, in chords and I, I stick to my two plus two plus two, but I also always think about the voice leading, meaning um, mm-hmm. where the melody is located versus where the, the accompaniment or the harmony or the chord is. Um, and so sometimes, you know, typically the melody is on the top um, is is in the top voice or on the top string, um, and the harmony is in the, on the lower strings. But sometimes Bach likes to switch it around, and sometimes you know it would be on the D string, or on the A string, on or in the G string. And a lot like we have on a lot of in a lot of fugues, 
So I do try to be very mindful of that in regards to what note I would stay more or what note I would stay on. I think that's really important to consider. And especially if it's maybe a chord that's interspersed with single notes that are walking down from somewhere, like there has to be that that melody flow through the whole passage, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a nice way to think about it. And probably in setting up, like we were talking about before, with the intonation on the left hand and the different voices that you might be emphasizing there too, making sure that those notes especially are working together harmonically in that passage, the intonation, right? Mm -hmm. Well, anything else you want to mention about this album and, and tell us where you can go and listen to it or download it? Uh, well, it's out on all the major uh, streaming services. So it's on Spotify and it's on um, Apple Music. You can also find me on YouTube where it's going to be uploaded soon. You can also go to my profile on Bandcamp and purchase the, the album. Bandcamp um, is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. we'll have those links in the show notes. And yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely encourage people to go check them out. And I was happy to see on, I'll, I'll add their links too, but on um, the websites of these two ladies who have composed these uh, two pieces that you've included, uh, you can buy sheet music from their websites. So if people want to play them, they can go yes. download them and play them. <laughs> absolutely. Go support those artists. They are amazing composers and, yeah, writing beautiful music. We've been talking a lot about some technique and training, and I'm just wondering, so you have a multicultural background. It sounds like you've lived in quite a few different places in your life, and, and how has that informed your violin playing? Have you found some real differences in in sort of the training and the approaches in these different places. Let's talk a little bit about your background and where you came from. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, uh, I was born and uh, raised in Israel, in Tel Aviv specifically. And that's where I got my first musical education and uh, my first violin lessons and so on. I then um, moved to Germany to get my master's. Um, I, uh, I studied at, uh, in Hamburg and um, I graduated and I stayed there for a few years and I, I worked, I freelanced there a lot. So I was, I was both a student there and in the working scene as well. And then I moved to New York, which is um, a very, very, very different place. And I, um, as we discussed at the very beginning, um, got my DMA, uh, my doctorate degree uh, at Stony Brook University. Um, but I've lived in New York City the, the entire time. So, you know, I, I, I feel really lucky to have experienced that. I find that, well, first of all, um, not only I, I, I studied in different countries and um, in, in different schools, but also my teachers come from very different backgrounds and have different influences, which I, which, which I think was even more influential on, on my studying process and my learning process. But I do find that those three, those three main places really shaped me as, a, as, as an artist and as a violinist. And a, a, a huge part of it is obviously experiencing the mentality of the place. So 
um, living in living in Israel because it's my home. I was always very comfortable, and I guess that comes with with a lot of being very laid back, just being comfortable. And uh, I, I studied with a teacher that um, has a lot of influences from the Hungarian school and. That was that was really really fascinating. So I there's a certain strict strictness that comes with that kind of school, but also an incredible uh, virtuosity. So I got to experience that, and then moving to Germany, I I got to experience the the true or maybe the history and the tradition and the a bit similarly to what I said about the, Leopold Mozart, the, the structure and the patterns. And, you know, that's how things have been done for centuries. And I learned all that. And I, and I really lived that because I was there and I experienced people mentality and um, not only having violin lessons and being in a school, but also going to the post office and talking to people in the supermarket. It's just like you experience the culture that is still, yeah, very much, very distinct and very traditional, um, incredibly different than anywhere else I've ever lived in. So um, I think that was a huge part of, of, of studying was living there and experiencing uh, the culture and people's mentality. And then moving to the States, um, you know, it's, it's the new world and the openness and the, the spirit of experiment and um, open-mindedness and um, multicultural uh, environment and um, being very modern, very edgy. So, of course, I studied with I, I had the incredible luck to, in, to study with incredible violinists and incredible musicians. Um, but I think a huge part of, of it is also just living and experiencing culture in different places in the world. It's a nice journey you've been on. I, I just kind of have this image of, you know, the, the, the young you, who's in Israel studying with a teacher who has a background in Hungarian, kind of the Hungarian school and sort of that, that passion. And like you said, the virtuosity of that. And then it's like, you take this journey to Germany where there's this structure and this is how it's done. And I, I love my time in Germany when I've been there, but yeah, there's this certain feeling of like, of course, this is how you do it. <laughs> Just little things like around, you know, staying with someone in their home or something. Oh, that's an interesting towel warmer you have over there. Of course, don't you have those too? No, actually we don't. <laughs> well, of course you need that. <laughs> you know, just little things like that just really struck me. Um, and then you're able to, you know, kind of grow into your into your playing, I'm, I'm sure, with your, your masters there and <clears throat> that technique, I'm sure that you were, you're given there. And then, yeah, coming to, like you said, the new world and, and mm -hmm. it's like anything's possible, right? There's, there's that openness. So it's a nice journey and can see how all of that is supportive and maybe at different times. Yeah. And you're taking part in, 
an orchestra. It sounds like it's based in Israel. Is that right? The, or, um, yeah. The West Eastern Divan Orchestra. Am I yeah. pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And just how they're trying to sort of draw, you know, there's been such conflict in that part of the world, mm-hmm. but to, to draw people together through music. Um, yeah, so it's an orchestra um, was born with the mission of, um, of, of bringing musicians uh, in the Middle East together and um, um, creating something that sort of shows, shows the world like it's possible to work together and it's possible to be friends and we're all human beings and we can also, we, we not only uh, we can get along, but we can create something really beautiful together if we come together and overcome, you know, all, um, put our conflicts aside. Um, and um, indeed, yeah. the orchestra members are all from the Middle East. So Israelis like me, um, people from Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, Iran, Iraq, all corners of the world. Um, many of them don't live in, their, in, in the country they were, they were born in. A lot of them live in different countries in Europe or in the States but we are all, you know, of that background and very connected to our backgrounds. Um, And we meet up once or twice a year to rehearse and play a lot of concerts together in amazing halls with Daniel Barenboim, who is one of the greatest musicians that ever lived. Um, and, And it's been an amazing experience. And it's nice, it sounds like being part of a touring orchestra, because you get to experience not only are all of these Middle Eastern cultures and countries coming together, but then you're going and you're sharing that music through all of these different countries, it sounds like, right? And and do you have any favorite memories of touring with the orchestra or being in different places that uh, just sort of stick with you? Um. Well, you know, it's, it might be a little bit cliche to say, but uh, I, I really love every moment of it. And for me, it's, it's more about the general state of mind that we're all in um, when we're touring together. And also when we go to our separate ways, um, that notion of it's possible. And we're such good friends. You know, they say the best way to love your, um, what is it, love your enemy or love your neighbor is to know your neighbor. Um, I'm not sure that was correct, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think too, yeah. Um, There's a saying in there, but yeah, to to put, again, to put differences aside, right? Yes, Um, and um, I, I remember a conversation I had with one of my good friends there who's from Egypt. Um, and he told me, you know, in uh, growing up, um, you, we learn in school that you're the enemy. We learn in school that Israelis are this satanic character that's trying to hurt us and hurt a lot of other people and you're the enemy and we learn to hate you. And then I came to this orchestra and I, I, I couldn't believe, I never thought I would have 
Israeli friends or that I would even get along with any of you. And I think a lot of people feel this way. I don't have a similar story, but I've never, I've never met anyone from Lebanon prior to this, to this experience. You know, when um, Israel has been in war with Lebanon for ever. Um, and to meet people from there and to become their friends is just um, is just incredibly special. Yeah, if we could all just meet the people that we're so afraid of or we're racist against or whatever, right? It'd be a completely Absolutely. different world. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Sit down and have a nice a nice jam, right? What a great idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds wonderful. Well, yeah. So conflict ex- externally, let's move into um, sort of these internal conflicts that we all experience. You've had some experience with this as well. And um, I was thinking about this earlier today before the call, just how, I know from my experience, you know, starting off playing violin, it's just like a whole new world and we're a beginner and we have no idea where this is going to go. And then at some point it shifts into, oh, I've got to work hard. I've got to get everything right. I've got to pass this audition. You know, all of these, these other things start to come in and can sometimes color just that initial spark of just exploration and joy that we feel for music, right? So how have you been able to keep that or come back to that in your life? Yes. Um, well, you know, I think that should be the core of, of, of every day and, and the core of our work um, all the time, because that's, that's, that's why we, that's the reason we play music. And that's, that's the reason we started that journey to begin with. So I, I do a very, a very regular sort of mental work with myself and I am someone that's very dedicated to maintaining my mental health, but also um, making progress or, um, you know, get better uh, with my routines and get better with the ways that I find. Um, So it's really... Um, it's almost like taking your vitamins, something that you need to do when things are good, even when things are good and you're not, and, and you're feeling great and you don't even understand why you need to do it because everything is great on a regular basis. And then it really, really, really helps you when things are not so great. Um, so I, I, I find that that's the the most effective way for me is to just regularly work on uh, my mental well-being outside of playing music, but also in regards to um, to being a violinist. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life and in my career, and um, you know, starting with the school that I wanted to go to, and then things that happened during school auditions, and then transitioning into professional life. So yeah, I've, I've had to handle a lot of, a lot of downs and uh, I've done it in different ways. And a way, one way that's, there might be a little bit controversial, but 
I think is very helpful is to take a break. (laughs) 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 And I'm not, and I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, Wedding violin and or putting it down for a, a, a year or a month even, but just you know, um, my father always says if if you get frustrated in the practice room, put put the violin down and go for a walk, and I think that's the mini version of um, when you're feeling very frustrated about things that happen in your career or if things don't go your way or, or um, rejection or, um, yeah, it could be deep frustration or, or just being very disappointed. Um, put your violin down and just give yourself, give yourself the time and the mental space and the, um, and um, the, the, the permission almost to just, to just be and, um, Go back to feeling well in your body and in your in your personality. I think that's really really important. So that's one thing. And then um, I found in the last few years, um, and this is by no means you know a perfect method or a per- perfect um, approach. But as I said, I'm I'm very committed to experience exploring and 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 developing that side of um, of my being um, but I try to be very uh, very focused on, on on the impact that I have and the commitment that I have to find my place in society where I can co- contribute most and be most of service um, and I find that when I think about people around me and the impact that my my work might have is where I find the sense of mission again um, that I started this journey with. So that's been guiding me a lot in the past few years. Having a sense of a mission. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. Taking that step back, you know, when you're feeling frustrated, like you're saying, Again, like to me, it, it hopefully we don't go away and like we're still frustrated and we're still, you know, but it's like it's that time that we're giving ourselves to kind of transform that feeling into something else, right? And to look at why we got so frustrated mm-hmm. with that passage or with the fact we didn't get into that orchestra we hoped we'd get into or that school we'd hoped we'd get into or, you know, what are we really wanting? So, so your mission, you know, what, what can you really contribute and and it's true, we all have such different skill sets and I think just like our our natural personality, like where can that blossom? Sometimes I think you had an Instagram post not too long ago, but it's it's like the career that's perfect for you is not necessarily what you set out to create exactly. You know, maybe it's still in the same, you know, it's still in music or something, but it's it's maybe just slightly different than than what you anticipated. I, I certainly found that for myself and have gone through those moments of reflection where it's like, well, I could do this and, and everyone else is doing that. I should do that. But what could I really contribute that would be unique, that would maybe help a certain set of people that 
you know, that I can really make a difference for us. So what's your current mission or just describe that a little bit for us, maybe? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, um, you understood my point exactly. Uh, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for clarifying. So right now I perform a lot, but I also teach a lot, which um, I find extremely rewarding and I love. My big umbrella mission is um, to, to help people connect to their inner selves and, and inner emotions through music. Um, but I also, and I, and I also find that with teaching, I can do or strive for something pretty similar that is give my students that kind of confidence that they can tackle a challenge and really overcome it. And I think that the, the sense of reward and, and, and confidence that comes with it is something that is such a gift for um, especially young students, but also um, my adult students who, um, I have a lot of students who you know, played as children and um, are coming back to it later in life. And just to see the, um, the joy that it brings them and, then, and the sense of um, accomplishment, but also, connection to themselves is um, extremely rewarding. And um, that's, that's something I, I focus a, a lot on, uh, just creating that sort of um, ease and comfort and, um, and, and confident in solving problems with all the students I have um, so that they can really play in a way that they feel they can express themselves and kind of the opposite of struggling with the instrument, but really, really enjoying um, what they create. Empowering them to, mm -hmm. to feel like they can, they can do what they need to do. They can get where they want to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's great that you're teaching both kids and adults. And it's interesting. I, I'm curious if you discover this too, but with the kids, it's sort of like, you know, they're expanding. They don't know who they are yet necessarily. Their personalities are forming, you know, and kind of reining it in so that they know how to practice correctly and stuff like this. And then the adult students, you know, it's almost kind of reawakening that childlike, like joy and discovery again, right? Because sometimes they've uh, gotten themselves into kind of a... A spiral of doubt or something like that and I found as a teacher myself yeah it's nice just to explore those different types of students because it, it all comes back to us right and how we can express ourselves more too whether we're performing or teaching or you know how can we be most effective do you have any tips for um, for students who are kind of juggling these things and and trying to uh, sort of learn to to manage their time well in the practice room and, and maybe students who are considering this as a career and maybe they are wondering how they're going to juggle, <laughs> juggle their lives in sort of an unconventional career. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Well, I have, um, I, I, I have a couple of tips. So um, in, in regards to uh, just managing your time and, um, maybe being most productive you can't or, you know, maximizing on um, the, 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 how you use your time. I would always make sure I have a plan for everything. So 
I usually do a very goal-oriented monthly plan. Then I would break it down to the smallest, mo most doable, most easy, more, most you know, chewable um, tasks and sort of delegate them uh, weekly. And that's something you obviously need to do after you realize or after you determine how much time you have for practicing. Because as a student, you're going to have classes and you're going to have times where you have to sit down and write papers or do your homework or you have your commute, you have to work. Make yourself a very clear plan and find those blocks of time where you can practice and break down those, those, those goals to the smallest, most doable units. Um, I find that's, that that's, you know, having a plan in general is, is key, but also being extremely clear with what you're trying to achieve. Also, if you don't follow the plan 100%, you have to be okay with it because we're all human and life happens and there's a certain capacity of um, information and energy that we have and everyone is different. Um, so it's trial and error, but also be kind with yourself. I think that's very, very, very important. I spent way too many years of my life being very unkind to myself and it hasn't been helpful. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. Um, and yes, in regards to juggling different things in your career, <laughs> <We'll look it laughs> um, I think that when you just start out, I do believe that it's important to yeah, say I yes to as many things. When you're young and inexperienced, often you don't really know what exactly it is that you want and what exactly is the direction that you want to go. Yeah, but also to get your name out there and to be successful and create connections, you do have to do as much as possible. Um, and you never know uh, what things are going to bring up. You know, you, you never know uh, where the next opportunity is going to come from. I've experienced getting amazing opportunities from the most unexpected situations. So when you're just starting out, I think it's really, really important to experience everything you can um, to the point where, you know, it becomes too much and, and maybe you're more clear about your goals and you can pan it out sort of, but I, I think it is very important. And be extremely professional when you do those things, because again, it can be the most random thing in the world and you don't think it's important, but maybe there's someone there that, um, you know, I'm not trying to sell some kind of a Cinderella story, but um, it's, it's just the practice of being professional is very important. It's the way you pre present yourself is very, very important just because it shows respect. It makes other people around you love to work with you. And it makes the whole experience much better as well. So do it for other people, for people around you, but also do it for yourself because it will make the whole thing way more enjoyable and, and show that you respect yourself first and foremost. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we've all probably heard stories of 
you know, the person who showed up at the the coffee shop to perform in the corner and then there happened to be some major person sitting there amongst the few people that actually showed up and and of course you want to be someone who's professional playing in the corner, you know, in that moment versus someone who's kind of upset that, oh, why weren't more people here? Or why am I, why am I not in Carnegie Hall right now instead? And <laughs> one of these things, right? Yes. So you just never know. And, and uh, yeah, you use that word respect, you know, it doesn't really matter again, like going back to, you know, you're trying to help people express themselves, whether that's your student or your your audience member you could just be playing for one person and it makes their day. And I liked this idea of setting monthly goals and then breaking things down with, of course, the knowledge that <clears throat> some things aren't going to go quite your way sometimes or, or you know, what I, what I thought about with that was just how many times students set their goals, but they just don't really know what's going to go into that goal. They're not experienced enough yet. They think, oh, I'm going to blast through, you know, this whole concerto in this month. And then next month I'll blast through another one. And, and they just don't have the experience yet of what it might take to work up something like that. Um, for example, right. And then feel down about, ah, I didn't do this. I'm not good enough. You know, um, I have students who are like, do you think I'm where I should be? And it's like, well, are we getting better? Are we improving week to week, month to month? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, you're probably where you need to be then. <laughs> and that that's, I like that. And, and, you know, as you, I, I'm assuming as months go by, you're able to sort of recalibrate a little bit better. We get better at setting those goals and knowing how we need to break things down and what kind of time we, we need to spend. And yeah, I mean, I'm still learning, you know, we're it's all still all learning. Yeah. <laughs> process. And, and thank you so much for bringing that up. I, um, um, it's, it's, it's really, really all work in progress and there's nothing wrong about that. Um, we're all just in the process of getting to know ourselves and our abilities and, Perhaps at the beginning of a of such process, um, it's it's a great idea to um, get help from your teacher or from a colleague or from a friend or from a mentor or from a chamber music coach, someone that you trust and respect. And I'm sure many people will will be more than happy to help. Well, it's true. I mean, having those people who've come before us who've already walked that path. I mean, just getting an assignment from a lesson is so beautiful in that future process of when we're on our own, knowing what's achievable in a week. Oh, my teacher thought it was achievable for me to learn that scale and do that etude and do, you know, that page and a half of that piece. Oh, okay. You know, and that's really different than you know, a lot of folks uh, now, I think out there, there's just so much material online where you can kind of teach yourself. And, but, you know, just that connection with someone who has, who has been there is just so important with just kind of showing us like what's possible, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, just maybe a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. Thank you so much for sharing all of all of this wisdom and, and your experience. But um, people are always curious about instruments and 
strings and what kind of shoulder rests maybe people use or I know it's all individual but uh, maybe do you want to share a little bit about your instrument and kind of your setup what what you've come to these days what you're enjoying sure um so I am extremely lucky to um you know I have a, an instrument in loan um which is a Petrozzini from um 1920 and I it's a it's a beautiful instrument. I've had it for seven years now, um, and I, I have I have my fair share of uh, experimentation with with uh, shoulder rests and shin rests. <laughs> I used to play. I played without a shoulder rest at all for a year, mm -hmm. um, and I found that it was very beneficial in helping me um, um, be more. Just learn how to be more relaxed and loosen up my both my hands. I felt very free for a lot of the time, but then every time I performed, I, I felt like I was really holding my, my instrument in a way that, you know, just clenching into everything, mortified that it would fall, you know, and um, I just felt like it, it wasn't, all the good work that I did in the practice room was ruined on stage. Oh no. <laughs> I could understand yeah. that. Yeah, I've tried to go without a shoulder rest on a few occasions, and it's just I've got this collar on that kind of sticks up. <laughs> it doesn't feel comfortable to have anything like too dramatically sitting on it. <laughs> right. So um, I think it's a, an important experience. I think everyone should occasionally practice without a shoulder rest. I find that practicing shifting without a shoulder rest is a very, very, very helpful and very interesting to begin with because if if you do that you suddenly realize how much you rely on that shoulder rest and once you take it off you actually need to learn how to shift <laughs> um so i find that extremely helpful um if anyone is looking for new ways to work on shifting just try taking your shoulder rest off um but uh right now i uh i'm i I do play with the shoulders. I play with a wolf, very simple, nothing fancy. Uh, I just bent it in a certain way that sits well on my shoulder. Um, I like ha having uh, one side of the violin sit on my, sh on my collarbone um, um, just because it's comfortable for me because of the shape of my bone. It's not, you know, everyone is different and I think needs to find a way that works for them. and also needs to explore and experience different setups uh, to before deciding. And I also know a lot of active performers who constantly change. So unless it's a real obsession, I think it's healthy to, you know, always look for ways that uh, you feel more comfortable with. Um, I use uh, Vision Solo for strings, which I find work really well with my violin. They have the good combination of clear, but also warm sound. Occasionally I would use Pirazzi. Um, I have a Pirazzi. Um, yes, and um, that's, that's about it. I think I go, I think I'm pretty simple with um, my setup and, and, and things that I use. Yeah, I like the wolf shoulder rests too. I've used them primarily and I like how you can bend them and mm -hmm. 
kind of to fit maybe not as much as like the Bon Musica, which is going to like kind of, it's quite heavy, right? And it kind of yeah. locks you in. So there's still some movement, but yeah, a little bit of a better contour maybe than some of the other ones that are just sort of set, you know, the contour is already set. Yeah, I like those. And I think mm -hmm. I have tried the Vision, the Vision strings at some point along the way. I think I like those. It's always different, you know, each... Each of the strings kind of has its own maybe yeah. overtone, undertone series. And yeah, that's just a little bit unique. So it's important, like you said, to, to sort of look in mm -hmm. and uh, experiment with your your personal body shape and your, your violin. And I don't think that's one size fits all at all for any of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are you looking forward to? You just finished this huge project of your doctorate. Are you just going to rest for a while or you have some other plans coming up? Yeah, well, I am actually, um, I'm actually going on tour with the Divan tomorrow. So oh, wow. I'm looking forward to that. We're going to um, Paris and Milan and Brussels and um, we're playing beautiful program and I'm, I'm excited to see all my friends and, uh, I haven't I haven't been able to play with them in the last two years because of travels res, travel restrictions. So I really can't wait to be reunited with my friends <laughs> and play beautiful music with them. And then I really hope I get to rest a little bit. Um, hopefully, you know, um, towards the end of the school year. So when I come back. I have some students recitals that I'm also very much looking forward to. It's always so amazing to um, get to take my students through that journey of preparing a concert and playing and um, everything that that brings. And then hopefully after that, I can take a few days off, dare I say a week, <laughs> 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 to refresh and, you know, and uh, uh, regain energy and yeah well thank you so much Maya it's been wonderful chatting with you well thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure I've been a longtime fan and I'm so glad that we got to chat today thank you so much thanks again to Maya Lorenzen for joining us today and sharing her new album Back to Bach which I hope you will check out I will have some links in the show notes and her wisdom and experience it's great to hear about someone who is out there doing what they love to do and making it work. And Maya is definitely someone who is doing that. So please head to her website, mylorenzen.com. That's M-A-Y-A-L-O-R-E-N-Z-E-N, mylorenzen.com. And I will have that link as well as these other links in the show notes. One piece of our conversation that stuck with me was the simplicity yet the importance of setting a monthly goal. And I think just so much of the time when we're practicing, it's just kind of one month rolls into the other, one year rolls into the other, and we forget to really take stock of where we're at and maybe just some of the little things that can get us to the next level. And this idea of setting a monthly goal and then breaking it down into chunks is so important. And it's something that I like to keep track of in a personal practice journal. And I've talked about that on the podcast in the past.
but just having a log and, and years of logs going back and seeing what I've been working on and being able to most of the time just very simply write down what I practiced and a few key points, maybe how things were going, certain measures or sections I want to return to, maybe some exercises that I want to make sure that I'm keeping around for a little while to address a certain technical issue. But it's just, it's very, it's been very helpful. And I just think back to the times like when I was a child before I had this idea of <laughs> keeping track of things. And thankfully, you know, those were times when I had a teacher. So I suppose week to week there were goals, but it's just, it's been really nice for me to have that, to stay honest with myself now that I'm free reign. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a free reign artist. So uh, I really appreciated Maya saying that and talking about that. And it, it, you know, it just seemed like something that so many of us can just kind of pass over. Oh yeah, monthly goal, whatever. But I just wanted to say that that was one particular thing that we that we did talk about that really did stick with me. And it was a good reminder for me. It was a good reminder, hopefully for many of you out there to just really think about in whether it's a month or it's a week or it's a year, like whatever that time frame is for you, but to think about what your goals are for your music and then to be able to find a path there. Because I think when we do find these setback times or these times when we might feel a little bit down about our music and about ourselves, it's when we really haven't had a good methodical path to where we want to get to. So of course, how are we going to get there? We have no map. So really to create that map, that was a really nice takeaway. And so many other things. So uh, we wish Maya all the best with all of her travels coming up here. Yeah, hopefully we'll hear from her again down the road. So again, I am Laurel Thompson, and my website is laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. On there, you can find information about me, my teaching, my recordings, and plenty of other stuff, including my Violin Geek blog, which is the companion here to the podcast. Let's see, since the last podcast, I know I put out at least one kind of funny, <laughs> funny blog post, which was about scammers. I have had this run of scammers lately and it's it's been very interesting to be getting all of these messages after quite a few years of not getting scammers so much for my, my music career. <laughs> I used to get quite frequently, I used to get some scammers for violin lessons and uh, that was probably 10-15 years ago. You know, it was kind of a, a run of scammers and I got hip to the idea that they are out there and was able to pretty quickly weed them out. But uh, they've gotten better at their grammar and English, <laughs> stuff like this. So it's a little bit harder to tell. And there's been a few that I've gotten recently for music lessons, but mostly it's been actually for live performance, which is new to me. And uh, anyway, in that blog post, I, I just kind of got fed up with it. And so about a month ago, I decided let's just turn the tables on the scammer. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't get a response, but uh, I haven't gotten any more scammer emails or uh, text messages since then. So maybe now they're on to other people. But anyway, I, I in that blog post, I wrote 
out what I had written to the scammer, and it's just meant to be kind of a, a humorous post, uh, but you're welcome to use it and recycle it if you're having these problems too. It certainly worked. They did not respond, like I said, but that was one post that I did recently. I've been also writing a little bit for Strings Magazine recently. There is an article coming out later this year about music notation programs. And so I got quite busy in the last month reviewing six different notation programs and that article, I'm not quite sure what the published date will be on it yet, but it was very interesting to fill up my computer hard drive with all of these new, some of these new notation programs. I think, you know, Finale and Sibelius are the kind of old standbys that a lot of us have used for many years, one or the other, depending on which camp we're in. But there are tons of other ones out there now, including ones where if you have an iPad, you can just with an Apple Pencil kind of scribble down just as if you were writing manually on staff paper. And then the program will turn it into, you know, hopefully very neat looking <laughs> sheet music. So yeah, it's, it's just incredible what's out there. And I definitely will mention that article when it, when it is coming out and uh, let you guys know. But if you're not a subscriber to Strings Magazine, it's a nice magazine to subscribe to. So you might uh, just do that and then you'll, you'll be sure to get that copy eventually when it does come out later this year. In any case, I hope you have a great start to your summer and I will see you soon with more episodes. I have some different topics coming up that hopefully people will enjoy, including some sort of playing health issues, uh, how to feel better in our bodies. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you guys very soon. And until next time, happy practicing. <laughs>